Technology doesn't start with the computer. Technology starts in the very moment when we start to make models for ourselves, when we start to translate some kind of a perception or knowledge or understanding of the world into something else. Hello and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Severin Matusek. The Culture and Technology Podcast is a virtual salon initiated by the Vienna Business Agency, in which experts from Vienna and around the globe explore how technology is reshaping the future of culture. Let's start with a simple question. Are you scared of technology? As a matter of fact, many of us are. Think about artificial intelligence. A future in where computers make decisions instead of humans is scary. I get that. But... Then I think about the history of human culture and realize that technology has always been part of how we make things. Take painting. In order to paint, you need a brush and a canvas. You need colors. Even the most ancient art we know, the paintings of animals in the case of Lascaux in France, were painted using tools that were forged through a technological process. That makes me wonder, can culture only exist through the interface of technology? And if so... How does technology shape the way we experience and create culture today? In order to find out, I invited Shannon Mattern and Paul Feigelfeld to join our virtual salon. Shannon Mattern is a professor of anthropology at the New School for Social Research in New York City. She teaches and writes about the infrastructure, spaces, and architecture of media. Our other guest is Paul Feigelfeld, who is joining me from Vienna. Paul is a media theorist, a curator, and cultural scientist who researches how media and technology change the way we think and work and produce art. I was very lucky to sit down with Shannon and Paul to explore the intricate relationship between culture and technology. So my first question would be maybe to you, Shannon, you start, how does technology shape our understanding of the world? Where to begin? So First of all, technology shapes the world we live in. We obviously need technology to shape the built landscape, to shape the apartments we live in, the cities we live in, the, our modes of transit, our means of communication. We would not be with one another right now if it weren't for technology. Technology is also the medium through which we experience kind of cosmic forces, things like space and time. Um, technology also kind of mediates our relationships with one another. Um, uh, obviously, in this age of a pandemic, uh, technology is a necessary kind of mediating factor in allowing for sociality to continue when physical proximity isn't possible. So these are just a couple of the ways in which technology kind of shapes the substrate, the container, the infrastructures, the conduits, the channels, the content, all the things that kind of shape the, the world that we live in together. Mm -hmm. How would you define technology? Because the first thing we think about is technology is a computer, is a mobile device, um, is software. But I also understand that a lot of your research goes into materiality, for example, like the screen or the, the chips, the silicone that they're made of. So what would be your definition of technology? Well, that's kind of a persistent question, especially being a non-anthropologist in an anthropology uh, program or department. This is where my imposter syndrome kind of seizes up a little bit because it's been um, uh, one of the central, central questions to anthropology and I would say to media scholars, cultural critics as well. So um, we tend to, I guess in general parlance, tend to think of technology as something that is perhaps equated with a tool um, a material object 
But instead, I prefer to think of it as, again, maybe drawing from my media theory trends, uh, a training in graduate school and before, that it's a more capacious definition. It also includes things like practices, standards, protocols. I just had this thought when you mentioned uh, the imposter syndrome, which, of course, we're all familiar with, um, is something that we might be able to apply to the question of what technology is, because I think sometimes we model technology to be somewhat of an imposter, um, whereas it's actually not. You know, we always think of it as a, some, some sort of a, an add-on, an intermediary, something that's in between and pretending to be something. It's not like an extension of the physical body, something that's reverse engineering, uh, something that we perceive of as natural. And I think This is where one of the main problems lies in terms of how we relate to technologies. We always historically have somehow placed them outside of our Lebenswelt instead of perceiving it and understanding it as something that is in a symbiotic relationship with, with us and always has been. As you said, technology doesn't start with the computer or with a simple tool, but I, I would say that technology starts in the very moment when we start to make models for ourselves, where we start to translate some kind of a perception or knowledge or um, understanding of the world into something else to make it, make it easier for us to understand, which then, of course, starts to shape the way we think about it. So if we translate the perception of something like a number into lying two stones into the sand, um, it will eventually create the next step in this sort of co-evolutionary process. So maybe we should stop thinking about technology and ourselves as imposters, uh, because this is something that we, we might loop back to today, where we, you know, design technologies to try to pose as us and uh, design tests to distinguish us from our technologies um, by trying to, you know, identify images of streetlights online. Just the fact that you even use the term translation gets at the idea that some theorists of technology even include language itself and, all, and the long history of writing systems of mark making within the realm or under the umbrella, the big umbrella of technology. Yeah. Now we look into the term culture which is another such a big term because culture is not something separate from technology or not something separate from our existence as humans. It's intrinsically part of it, isn't it? So culture, technology, where do we begin even to start understanding that relationship? Well, we could start in the Greek theater and with this you know, very famous term of the deus ex machina, which is so often used these days to, to talk about sort of some sort of spiritual uh, quality of technologies or some point in time where there is a convergence or singularity. When in the, in the literal sense of the word, it's, it's a theatrical machine that just heaves some actor onto the stage who then, again, is an imposter for a god. So if we look at it that way, there's really no distinction between culture and technology. They both can't exist without each other. And they're just sort of two qualities of the same mode of existence. But there are also people who think of culture more broadly and say that it's not something that's specific to the human as well, that you can have a shared set of values and rules of behavior that maybe, um, again, it depends on how capaciously you define technology, where you could think of other species having certain cultural practices in common, like swarming behaviors or how do bees build a beehive or how do kind of wolves go on a hunt together. Maybe we can't necessarily say that they're using culture to do that, but they do have a shared set of practices that's 
Some of it is innate. Some of it is learned behavior. Um, but culture in mostly human context and in some kind of non-human context as well, technology is certainly um, a, a container or a mediating factor within a cultural practice. Right. That's super interesting. Maybe that's a good direction to go in if we think about the non-human aspects not just when it comes to animals, but maybe also to ecosystems and, and all kinds of organisms that organize uh, in some, some way or the other, technologically and culturally. Mm-hmm. Well, the slime mold in particular has been a popular topic of research in recent years, in part because people who do generative planning, kind of generative design, have found some inspiration in the almost accidental design the slime mold produces. Transportation planners, people who are looking at logistical systems, are wondering in the um, awe, the sense of awe at the ability for a slime mold, for instance, to self-organize and produce this really efficient um, kind of geographic connection between different points, where um, I think given the uh, rudimentary biological nature of a slime mold, some slime mold, some folks might be reluctant to say that a slime mold has a culture, but um, there is kind of a self-organizing behavior happening there, not only self, but like a community organization of behavior, where perhaps even the definition of culture might apply to a set of organisms as seemingly simple as that. Well, especially when we talk about molds, right? We call them cultures, you know? Yeah, yeah. Fungi in general. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. But then what do we make of the fact that there is sort of also these different definitions of what culture is you know this very situated high culture that we have in vienna and this understanding of culture that is mainly museums theaters operas a certain kind of conservative approach to it so how how can we open up the discussion even more to think about these uh terms more broadly for the viennese audience for example (laughs) (laughs) that's a great question i think it's just kind of expanding the legacy and realizing that even these Seemingly rudimentary, we might even use it in scare course, the term primitive aspects of culture that we're talking about are part of the legacy of being able to have things like opera houses and um, kind of historically significant architecture and the performing arts, etc. So any type of these rudimentary forms of self-organizing or community organization, community organized behaviors are necessary for these kind of more rarefied manifestations of it. I also think that drawing from German language scholarship, a lot of cultural techniques research and media theory that's originated in the German language is really useful, particularly in the field of media and technology for expanding that definition of what counts as culture, what is a technique, which then goes back to your previous question about how generously do we want to find, define technology too. Yeah, yeah. I think we could start with trying to convince um, the audience of the Vienna Opera House that there is a relationship between, you know, the Fibonacci numbers and the golden ratio and the architecture of the building itself. But it might be harder to convince them that there is a relationship between the behavior of a slime mold and the way that they start to, you know, go into the theater and find their seat. But uh, it might be necessary actually to to actualize an understanding of culture and technology that, that's somehow more contemporary and or even future-oriented. One thing that, that's interesting is, I wonder if the technology of today, let's say what came up in the last 20 to 30 years, thinking about the internet as a technology that connects billions of people around the world, digital devices that we all have in our pockets that serve as navigation, translation devices, and so on, or even extended reality or virtual reality, 
do these technologies allow us maybe to think beyond this human-centric view of the world? You know, that it even allows us to think of slime cultures as interesting, relevant things to explore because these technologies maybe open up to us to look at human nature beyond us being the center of the universe, which was such a prevalent theme of the last 2000 years, I would say. Human nature is such a funny term, actually, because what, what people generally mean by it is something that has nothing to do with nature at all. It's something that human nature is, by definition, trying to set oneself apart from nature by producing culture. What I was thinking about more is, like, if we think about the distribution of technology and, and the ubiquity of technologies these days and over the past couple of decades, is how it changes the way that culture is uh, produced and distributed because it's not, you know, concentrated into just, you know, the venue of the theater or, um, or the museum or the archive. And especially this year, you know, everything has opened up even more because all these venues are um, necessarily closed and have to find different solutions to stream. So maybe that's something that we could start to think about also what that means, you know, how presence and absence and mediation um, change the content and, and the perception and the affect um, of it all, because that's something that I feel is missing greatly. And that's something where I feel like this current moment has um, opened up a lot of new possibilities. Of course, we'd prefer to not be in a pandemic. That said, if we want to look at the potential positive outcomes or new questions that this exceptional opportunity has raised is there's been so much interesting experimentation in the arts. The, uh, anything that requires people gathering together in a space to watch a live performance um, where we have um, uh, people in the theater, people in live music performance, visual arts, television, film, etc., who are really experimenting with what, how, wh how presence has historically been regarded as necessary for their art form, and how we can perhaps um, recreate that, simulate that, mediate that, or do away with it altogether in rethinking what the fundamental kind of nature of going back to your term, it's problematic term nature, the, the essence of their art form is. There's been so much interesting experimentation in Zoom-based kind of practice over the past year. That's true. And it's also, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about going on about whether it's something entirely new. I would say no, because this is something that has been happening gradually over the past decades or always, has always been happening. It's always been a question of, you know, gapping distance and proximity and in inviting and inventing new forms of intimacy and affectation, uh, if this is the right word. But of course, the massive scale of this year where it literally applies to everyone in the world, you know, and it's, it's not an option, but it's a necessity is something that is uh, interesting. And I think also inhibiting for many people to think about it properly because you're, it's hard to think about it when you're, totally in it. And when you're in it, by, but not by choice, but by necessity. I think you're right to point out the, the, the long history of this type of work, you know, that you have the history of telepresence art. Uh, you have even some of the early uses of the telephone were to broadcast kind of musical performances to democratize a lot of these art forms, these cultural forms, and make them accessible to people who don't necessarily have access to a city or to the cult, quote unquote cultural resources of a metropolitan area. So some of the really early uses of our telecommunication technologies for the distribution, going back to one of your terms, Paul, earlier, um, of cultural forms. Does, does democratization, is that related to it? You know, the, the big theme of technology of the past decades of 
democratizing access. So suddenly somewhere who lives on a mountain in the middle of nowhere can meet people at the other end of the world, find resources, exchange and so on. And then there's the critical voices that say, well, democratization is not really true because the power structures have just shifted and there are new power structures. So what are your thoughts on that when it comes to power structures, democratization, access of culture to the people? One of the standard histories or um, uh, uh, ways of framing technological history and media history is that most new inventions come out of the military. So there, that's a very different way of thinking about power structures. So there's a lot of it is government funding, military applications, and then it is, quote unquote, democratized, commercialized, used in more kind of quotidian uh, civilian contexts. So there, we're already starting with a bit of a power, not a bit, a major power imbalance. So, and and I think that every technology, even in its moment of origination, um, you could find multiple genealogies for a lot of the technologies that have historically been used and are used today, some of which have a mix of these democratizing ideals and uh, uses of the technology for the purposes of control and domination. I think maybe McLuhan and some of the other kind of technological light determinists might disagree and say that there are certain kind of political balances that are built into Langdon Winner and his idea that artifacts have politics. Maybe a bomb was not meant to democratize. Maybe all it can do is dominate. That's one technology that has a pretty clear purpose leaning towards one political orientation. But in most tools and technologies we think of, there is a mix of, of democratizing potential and domination potential, if that we can think of those. I don't know if those are necessarily opposites, but that's what came to mind immediately for me. Yeah, but maybe there's been a shift a little bit over the past, say, two, three decades that um, the culture of technology uh, might have changed so much globally in terms of you know the, the way it became a dominating industry that it might have started to bypass the military application. I think the vector might have changed a little bit, whereas it used to come out of the military into the private sector, into the general populace. Uh, now it's the private sector, then it's the general public. And then, as we can see, it's becoming weaponized again, you know, as, as a tool for political manipulation or psychological warfare, for example, or even uh, as a tool of, of um, surveillance, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely Right. Yeah. And that has a lot to do with things like where funding sources come from, especially in the United States. We have such an impoverished kind of public funding for things like technological and cultural development, whereas in the Cold War era and before that wasn't necessarily the case. One thing we can't deny is that technology is now very widely available to very many people. And I wondered what your opinion is on who creates culture nowadays, especially when you think of high culture, as Paul mentioned, when it comes to museums, art, theater, performances, uh, music. There is a democratization happening in terms of power structures being reversed that you don't need to go through a traditional career in order to be at the peak of it, able to reach an audience at the opera. You can now reach an audience of millions anywhere by being a bedroom producer, basically. Is this something you, you think about in your research as well of like, who creates culture and how does it change culture? I'll give you two examples. One, in my work with public libraries, there's been so much theorization about the archive over the years. It's a really kind of sexy thing to, to think about. A lot of theory about the archive. This is in part why early in my work, I started to focus on libraries because comparatively, hardly anybody theorizes the library. The um, modern conception of the library has been more about democratization. 
about kind of public uplift with all of its kind of Foucauldian implications, granted. But um, in public libraries in particular today, there's a an acceptance or kind of an, um, a promotion of the idea that local cultures, local populations, local communities are producers of valuable and valid knowledge as well. So encouraging kind of local communities to bring in material, the family heirlooms, kind of uh, user-produced content, family media, and recognizing that as a really important part of knowledge production of a city or neighborhood. Um, uh, recognizing kind of indigenous knowledges, other forms of knowledge, performance as a form of kind of knowledge production. So these are some things that like public knowledge institutions are grappling with, recognizing that what constitutes culture, what constitutes public knowledge is broader than the more kind of elitist and, and, um, and perhaps more narrowly defined uh, definitions. And then if we look at the other side, I have, um, as a relatively late adopter to TikTok, been trying to understand what the medium is all about. And I can appreciate certain art forms, certain cultural forms that are really specific to TikTok. Of course, we can find kind of longer genealogies of those too. And then reading several articles about it, celebrating kind of especially teen culture and new art forms that are produced on TikTok. I mean, I appreciate them for the novelty they offer, for the democratization potential they bring. But I have to admit kind of in my 40-something curmudgeonly list, I have a little bit of a difficulty recognizing that as having kind of long-term value as much as our more rarefied forms of culture. And this is my own bias to get over, but but these are forms where even in my own, what I would like to imagine is a somewhat enlightened, kind of um, a generous perspective, have a bit of trouble looking at kind of the pranks and jokes that we see on TikTok as a form of cultural production. I love that we landed at TikTok. So, Paul, <laughs> what are your thoughts on TikTok? Well, I mean, in general, I, I really agree with um, with Shannon, and I can just emphasize this. It's very important to to have a, a broader grasp of what cultures and technologies and techniques and how all these different. I mean, this this is not enough time here to grapple with all these different terminologies but they make up a good toolbox to sort of de describe the practices. You know, I, I think the example of what it means to have a library and how to use it in a very haptic sense and as a place of community, etc., that collects a lot of different things is brilliant and says it all. Whereas we have to differentiate between an institution and an infrastructure or it's an institution and a platform because a platform has a very, very distinct focus. You know, it's, it's made to do something very specific. It's not just a collection that uh, offers a variety of different uses. Of course, platforms also invite contingency, you know, and people will always misappropriate it in some way or other and make it creative somehow. But um, I think TikTok as sort of the most radically algorithmically catered platform we have thus far, you know, that really, really rams it down your throat. It tries to, I think, exclude this kind of contingency because it very very narrowly focuses on what you can do and it will just enhance and enhance and enhance this so people might all do seemingly strange things at first but if you look at at it from 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 a bird's eye view to come back to the perspective that you said we should prefer in the beginning you might see that it's very streamlined in the end and that there is very little contingency and very little surprise in there because it's designed that way it's the main idea because this is something that will 
uh, it's it's a collection, but it's two different forms of collection. One is the collection that's already there and then that it, it will invite you to use the collection. The other one is something that is made to collect a certain form of data and it will make you behave in a way that will give them the most refined form of data that they can ask for. And I think this idea that TikTok and newer platforms are algorithmically controlled gets another important factor in terms of who gets to define what culture is. And this is curatorship. Whereas, you know, in older forms, there's like a limited supply. There's the idea of the virtuoso, that particular gatekeepers, often whom, who are institutions, to go back to one of your terms, Paul, distinguishing the infrastructure of the platform from the institution, will determine what rises to the top. We have kind of standards of quality control, et cetera. But when an algorithm is, is deciding what gets pushed to the top of the feed, it tends to promote certain types of behaviors, formats that have proven popular. The algorithm as curator is very different from kind of the head of an arts institution or the programming director of an arts institution as curator, which tends to favor different types of quote unquote content. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's like, you know, the recommendation algorithm of Amazon, which is surprisingly bad. You know, I just recently bought a, a pair of pants, you know, like hiking pants or a TV, you know, and then of course, for the next couple of weeks, it will offer me to buy ever more TVs, like it, as if I need, but it's the same principle, you know, so curation, of course, and there's been a lot of discussion about that algorithmic um, curation and and selection processes and creative potential of machine learning etc cetera, etc cetera. it's still not there yet and i think it's a question like where we go which turns we take right now in terms of designing these systems and and critiquing these systems thinking about these systems because given that the vectors might have changed but uh, the vectors of development are still quite of unidirectional you know there's very little communication going on and um, and critical thinking going on in the way that it's designed. Uh, and and I mean, not to sound pessimistic, but people like Shannon and me are usually, you know, we're, we're the last in the loop. It's already there, it's already falling down on us. And we have very little time to think what it might do, you know, or, or just, you know, watch from the smoldering aftermath. And, and I have one last question. So I think we've developed quite well to this understanding of the underlying infrastructure of culture and technology. And my question is, let's say there are institutions that have still, that are curators that have certain power because they have this physical manifestation and the reputation of being institutions. Then we have cultural producers who might be all of us at some point. And then we have artists who are also cultural producers, but maybe also have more established positions. So what are the responsibilities of us as these cultural producers in order to use these technologies to maybe design platforms differently, maybe to curate differently, maybe to open up new forms of culture? What do you think? Well, this kind of makes me think of something I posted on Twitter that was based on a conversation I had with a student a couple of days ago. I had a student who was thinking about who wants to uh, develop new pedagogical systems to work with different community groups to help them think about how they can understand facial recognition and perhaps resist it. So at the end of the workshop, she wanted, didn't want to just leave them with a pessimistic view or a sense of deflation or disempowerment, but instead help them to imagine how technology could be designed differently. But she didn't want to go through the frame of speculation because that term has carried some baggage. So she wanted to think beyond speculation with all of the 
perhaps the negative connotations that term has taken on in certain circles. And I tweeted, you know, I wish this term had become so kind of um, subsuming or all-consuming. And someone tweeted, well, this is exactly what like Tristan Harris and the Tech for Good movement is doing. I'm thinking, no, they're still within Silicon Valley. They're still within the institutions. They wanted to think beyond. What would it be beyond thinking about technology as a driven by market considerations? Something that's not about kind of the purely practical kind of... um, self-sustaining markets of, of uh, technological development. Her conception of how do we think outside the box is so far beyond what somebody like Tristan Harris and a Tech for Good organization could think because they're still thinking within the institutions. I just have one word, actually. It's awareness. I think it's about the education of an awareness that everyone, uh, whether they want it or not, are part of uh, a creative process. When like We're all co-designing whether we want it or not, the technological infrastructures. We are participating, be it just with our data, our facial features, um, uh, our you know behavior online, and adding transparency to this infrastructure and making it possible to implement more circuits of choice where you can actually make conscious decisions That's it for this very first episode of the Culture and Technology Podcast. In our next episode, we will explore how extended reality can create a deep sense of intimacy between an artwork and its viewer. If you're curious, as I am, in digging deeper into the theories and arguments mentioned throughout today's conversation between Shannon and Paul, check out the show notes in your podcast app. We have created a handy little list of links and resources for you to dive deeper into. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports Vienna's businesses, economy, and creative industries, and in doing so, shapes the city's future. I hope you'll join us for the next episodes, where we will explore how technology impacts the future of culture.